This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Jonathan Rauch. Jonathan is a journalist, an essayist for The Atlantic Magazine, and the author of The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. During our conversation, John talks about what the constitution of knowledge is and how its norms and practices are the backbone of how our civilization attempts to ascertain the truth and how this innovation in civil discourse has led to an unprecedented rise in peace, freedom, and knowledge. He talks about the two modern threats to that foundation, from both the left and the right, from cancel culture and troll culture. Cancel culture found throughout history is a coercive and intimidation method to shut down speech, often deteriorating into a spiral of silence, providing a false sense of uniform belief. He also talks about troll culture and how disinformation is at its root aimed to confuse the populace with a demagogue or a strongman leader waiting to step into the vacuum to provide the truth people so desperately desire. These dual threats are overt attacks to the center, to the mainstream, what John calls the reality-based community. They're direct assaults on the collective immune system of the nation, and they brilliantly play on our deep-seated, evolutionary, tribal biases. Jonathan offers insight into how to accurately assess our unsettling times, and how we might upgrade our own individual software to help to inoculate ourselves and our society. On a personal note, I think John's book is one of the best and one of the most important that I have come across in years. He is a master diagnostician and his clarity of observation is brilliant, deeply needed, and timely. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Rauch. Jonathan Rauch, thank you so much for doing this. Um, All of these conversations I look forward to, but as I alluded to before we recorded this, uh, I think this is going to be a special conversation, and it gets at a lot of the heart of this show and why I think this show might matter to some people. Um, welcome. It's great to meet you. Welcome to the show. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Let's start um, maybe at the beginning for you as to how you even came to be interested in writing the book we're going to talk about today, which is the Constitution of Knowledge. What is that story for you? And when you think back at <laughs> and make sense. And there it is. There it is. <laughs> what What got you interested in thinking there was a book here? Um, how do you make sense of that story for yourself? Well, that's a that's an old story because um, I got interested in where knowledge comes from. High school, reading Thomas Kuhn's Structure Scientific Revolutions, and then in college, studied the history and, and sociology of science, which is about where knowledge comes from. And then in, I was always a free speech nut, 
And then in 1998, when Ayatollah Khomeini issued his death sentence against Salman Rushdie, I thought the response from the West was just muddled and confused and, and weak. Um, so I actually quit my job to write a book called Kindly Inquisitors, The New Threats to Free Thought. And that was a free speech book. Um, at least that's the headline. It's easy to understand, but it really was a book about how liberal societies make knowledge and why and how we do it in a completely distinctive way that no other society has. We use this depersonalized, decentralized public, public um, system of criticism and exchange to make knowledge. And that book was about all the people who want to shut it down, like what I call fundamentalists. That's anyone who's so sure they're right that they don't need to permit questioning or debate and egalitarians who are people who think that all beliefs are created equal, especially if you're an oppressed minority and humanitarians who are people who think that um, words that are offensive are a form of violence and should not be allowed. So that book was published now 29 years ago. And then I went away and did other things like gay marriage, kind of thinking that the problem with, you know, free speech on campus and elsewhere was kind of abating. And then then came the world of social media and Donald Trump and canceling and college chilling. And four or five years ago, I realized that first, not only was the problem back, it had morphed in ways that were more complicated and difficult. And second, that the first go around, I had left out the most important piece, which is what is the structure that we rely on to make knowledge? What are the rules? Um, it's not just free speech. It's a constitution of knowledge. And so that became the book. Yeah. You start the book with taking the reader back to Athens. And a lot of the book is about epistemology. And mostly for myself, I will read out a rough definition of what that word means. And I'd love to get your take on why you started the book back, back in Athens and why you think an analysis of epistemology matters given the subject matter of the book. And epistemology, roughly speaking, the theory of knowledge, the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion or reality from fiction. Why does the book start in Athens? Why was that important to you to, to begin there? <laughs> Mostly because I love the story of Socrates and <laughs> Athens and doing what he does, <clears throat> but also as a way to indicate to readers that this is a, the questions we're dealing with right now today, like Facebook, content moderation, Elon Musk, Twitter, canceling, um, disinformation, that all of these are not new questions. They go back to the dawn of philosophy. They go back to Socrates in the streets of Athens. And I wanted to indicate people that, that what they're joining when they think about this is one of humanity's oldest and most fundamental debates. How do we know what we know? Do we know what we know? How do we deal with the fact that humans are incredibly prone to, to bias and self-deception and rationalization, especially in ourselves? How can we figure out when we're wrong? How do we adjust for that? That's what Socrates is asking. And that's, that's what we're asking today about Facebook. Yeah. When you think of the word epistemology, and I tried to give a, a rough definition there, is there anything else you would add to that that you think matters to kind of set the table for the conversation we're going to have today? <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, Dan, when I talk about this, I, I kind of get away from the, the word epistemology <laughs> as fast <laughs> as I can. Yeah. I mean, if you ever want to want to empty a cocktail party, just say 
epistemology, or, or worse than that, say the real subject of my book, Madisonian epistemology. Uh, so no, we don't have to dwell on the meaning of the word epistemology. Yeah, fair. But we can if you like. I, I think I think maybe what would be even more important to uh, to add to that is what you mean when you say the constitution of knowledge. Right, it's right in the title, but in general, what do you mean when you when you use that phrase? Why why does that matter? Why is that important to a civilization? So this takes a paragraph. If uh, if I can filibuster for you know a couple minutes, please. I usually like try to go for sharp, concise answers, but but that won't work in this case. So they're all things that we individually believe. Like you probably believe that Elvis Presley is still alive and living in Indiana because some people believe that. Maybe you're one of them. And. Often we can take a pretty relaxed view about what people believe. Okay, you believe Elvis is still alive. That's fine. But then we get to questions of what we believe, what we decide is true for public purposes as a society. Okay, so do we send Elvis a social security check? Well, now the, the rubbers met the road. Like there are people in this township where the city council uh, thought aliens were visiting planet Earth, but they said, okay, so we should spend public money to to create a, a landing pad for space aliens. So now suddenly we're talking about public money. You can escalate this. Who won the 2020 election? Hmm. Well, you can think Biden and I can think Trump or vice versa, but we'll have to make a social decision about that. So deciding on knowledge, who's right and who's wrong in a inherently conflicted world with lots of opinions and no two people believing exactly the same thing or even seeing the same thing. This turns out to be really hard. Again and again, it's led to wars, untold destruction throughout human history, because probably the standard way to settle profound social disagreements is you kill me. You kill the hypothesis by killing the person, or you exile me, or imprison me, or oppress me, or threaten my family. So then in order to prevent that, another traditional way to do it is authoritarianism. You appoint a priest, a pope, a politburo, a dictator, a czar. You have a holy book that everyone has to refer to. There are all kinds of ways to doing it, but, but you set up an authority and you say, okay, our group believes this according to this person or this text. Well, that can keep peace for a while, usually not very long because in a disagreeing world, the society will schism, and then it's Catholics versus Protestants and 150 years of war in Europe that kills possibly up to a third of the population of what's now Germany. So that turns out not to well, work well either. Plus, it's oppressive and ignorant. Hmm. About 300 years ago, around the same time as the core ideas of the U.S. Constitution and Declaration of Independence were being pioneered, People in the same social environment, in some cases, people who knew each other, were setting up what became modern science, modern law, eventually modern journalism, which is a whole different way of settling public disputes about truth. They said, what if no one in particular makes this decision? What if we outsource it to a social network, not a term they had, but that's what it was, of people everywhere checking for each other's mistakes. So you float a hypothesis, 
you're going to have to give evidence to persuade people like me. I'm going to check it. I might find mistakes. I might improve it. I might then pass it on to others. And only after many people, institutions have looked at it, modified it, accepted it, revised it, does it enter the textbooks. That's science. It's also law. It's also journalism. That's the constitution of knowledge. It works a lot like the U.S. constitution. It's not just a figure of speech. There is a constitution of knowledge. It's not a law that's written down, but it's all the practices that you know we learned in college about how to state an argument, how to use ad hominem ways of talking about it, um, experimentalism, the use of logic, um, willingness to accept that you're wrong. And the key thing that both constitutions, the U.S. Constitution and the Constitution of Knowledge have in common, they both force social negotiation in a non-coercive way. In the U.S. Constitution, if and you can, you can have any social preference you want, but if you want to make a law that's going to govern society, you'll have to compromise with people who think differently. That's the whole point of Madison's constitutional system. It forces compromise. In the realm of truth, if you want to get into the textbooks or in the core curriculum, not just your opinion, but widely accepted as true, you're going to have to persuade a whole lot of people that you're right. And that's going to force you to talk to them and them to you. And you're going to have this conversation about truth. And it's what emerges from that vast decentralized social conversation. That's our knowledge. Um, and it's all, it's not just free speech. Free speech is not enough. Free speech by itself gets you 8chan, Twitter. Um, it gets posturing, lying, impersonation, trolling. That's the natural human condition. Constitutional knowledge is the structure we rely on that says, okay, you can say and do anything you want in terms of your beliefs, but if you want accepted, it, it accepted as knowledge you're going to have to follow some rules. You're going to have to state a claim. You're going to have to subject it to criticism. You might be wrong. If the verdict is against you, you may have to accept that, that you lose the argument and so forth. So that's our system for making knowledge. It transforms us as a species from a group of small tribes running around, all believing we have the right answer, yet none of us having it to a global system of minds and institutions that can pivot to decode a new virus over a weekend, design a vaccine in three days and have it in my arm in less than a year. Yeah. I think in that description, you have essentially just clarified what it is that makes civilizations like our own so special. And that process you just detailed it's an innovation of sorts that to me, from a computer science language perspective, seems like a massive system upgrade for human nature and human civilization in general. Um, That's a great way to put it. Jonathan Haidt talks about this as settings that we rely on. I've sometimes called the constitution of knowledge a social operating system for figuring out what's true and what's not. And, and yes, it is all of those things. And it is a massive upgrade. Height points out that this system of turning the knowledge production process over to a vast global network increases humans' capacity orders of magnitude above our design potential. 
And it is to me something that is bordering on a sacred inheritance. You know, I think you say also that this constitution of knowledge, according to your, you know, to your mind, is the only system that leads to peace, freedom, and knowledge on a widespread scale. And like so many things that I think just you and I as Americans, as people who live in the West, it is very easy to take for granted the status quo. Talk about what this innovation has meant for you know, warts and all, flaws and all, the flourishing of humanity um, in ways that you think really matter and, and have mattered historically for, for people everywhere who have adopted the constitution of knowledge within its society. So the big three, Dan, are the three that you just mentioned, um, knowledge, freedom, and peace. Um, I hope most listeners to this podcast value those things. Maybe some of you don't, but I'm guessing most of you do. So we'll take those foundation as foundational and we'll say, so now we're looking for social systems that promote those things. Um, well, there is only one social system that is capable, even remotely capable of linking millions of minds and thousands of institutions around the world into a kind of transcendent global hive mind of institutions and professionals hunting for each other's mistakes. You can hypothesize about something from your apartment in Brooklyn, get it into a journal, or even put it on, well, I don't want to use Twitter, social media is a bad example, but, but get it into a journal and it can be critiqued in a matter of days by someone in Africa speaking Swahili. Hmm. And then it can move on to somewhere in Taiwan. Um, and it can engage these minds around the world in a search for error that is transformative. The, the, the key to science, liberal science, this whole big system, um, isn't that it doesn't make mistakes. It's that it makes its mistakes incredibly quickly and finds its mistakes incredibly quickly. It's, it's a bit like, I think, what you data people do when you design systems that can plow through massive amounts of data and churn through it very quickly. So the key is it can find these, these needles of knowledge, that rare, scarce new idea that's better than the old ideas in the haystack of bad ideas, and do that with incredible speed. Nothing else even comes close. And that's why on any given day today, I can't prove this, but I think it's true. Any given morning today, um, the constitution of knowledge, what I call the reality-based community, we should talk about what that is, produces more new knowledge any given morning than all of humanity did for its first 200,000 years. So that's number one, knowledge. Number two, freedom. Other systems rely on authority which means at some level, they ultimately rely on repression and oppression. Constitution of knowledge does the opposite. It says you can only do good research, good science, good journalism, where there is diversity of viewpoint and disagreement. That's your raw material. It's like Madison's constitution. He wanted a big republic with lots of different factions so that they could be pitted against each other and dynamically come up through the, with the right answer. It's exactly how science works and how journalism and the others work. Um, but it relies on diversity of viewpoint, on pluralism, and on freedom of thought and speech, because it says, Dan could be right, I could be wrong. However crazy his new idea sounds, 
maybe it's worth testing. Maybe he's going to be the guy who overthrows generations of outmoded thought. Hmm. Um, so freedom is baked in, even in principle. It is impossible to have authoritarian control of science and research and journalism and these other fields. They are inherently all spread out so that everyone and anyone can contribute. And when it works, they contribute according to the same rules on the same terms. So that's unique. And then the third is peace. That's, that's the biggest of all of them. That's the one we discuss. It is a revolution in human affairs that we no longer kill hypotheses by killing the, the people who hold them. As Karl Popper said, instead, we kill our hypotheses instead of killing each other. And that allows us to churn through these massive amounts of data and ideas very quickly. But it also means we're settling these disputes, if not amicably, at least civilly. And that's a revolution in human affairs. It is no longer a danger to me or the country. If you're a Catholic and I'm a Protestant, it's just not a problem anymore. Yeah. In thinking about this conversation in the last day or two, it, it occurred to me that, you know, in many ways, uh, in the way that you just outlined, that is the system of our civilization that we have all luckily been born into in general and have, have been living within. But there has been a, an attack on the immune system, which I think is mostly what the second half of the book is about. And I believe you break that down into um, basically troll culture and cancel culture. And those two hammering against that constitution of knowledge, the basis of our, our society and civilization in general. And I want to read a quote from your book that I thought was, was profound. And this probably speaks best to the cancel culture. So perhaps it makes, it makes sense to, to start with that one. The miracle, this is me quoting you from your book. The miracle is how robust free expression and liberal science have proved to be despite unremitting attacks from every direction over hundreds of years. The idea that obnoxious, misguided, seditious, blasphemous, and bigoted expressions deserve not only to be tolerated, but of all things protected is the single most counterintuitive social principle in all human history. Every human instinct cries out against it, and every generation discovers fresh, fresh reasons to oppose it. It is saved from the scrap heap of self-evident absurdity only by the fact that it is also the single most successful social principle in all of human history. Those of us who favor it, and also our children, and also their children and their children, will need to get up every morning and explain and defend our counterintuitive social principle from scratch. And so we might as well embrace the task and perform it cheerfully. I thought that was brilliant. And I'd love to, you already mentioned in this conversation that you're a bit of a free speech nut. What is the state of free speech in our society as you see it right now? And what is the, the threat that cancel culture, which you write a lot about in the book, poses to the kind of culture that I think you and I probably cherish and want to live in? The legal state of free speech is better than it's ever been before. Starting with landmark decisions in the 1950s and 60s, the Supreme Court has steadily shored up the freedom to speak your mind without um, government intervention or formal sanction. And I can tell you as, as a gay American, this has revolutionized civil rights. It's revolutionized everyday life for, for people like me. The state of social free speech is precarious. So 
it turns out that you need not only the law of free speech protection from the government, but it turns out that you need a civic environment, a social environment, which is hospitable to people speaking their mind and which tells people, you know, you may be offended sometimes. That's life. Um, That's part of living in a a free and open republic. And it's worth it because you might learn something. They might be right, or at least partly right. The founders, uh, Madison and the others who wrote the Constitution, were very clear that the words on paper, the laws were not enough. They said, you need a public that supports the ideas behind the Constitution. Lincoln said the same thing. John Stuart Mill, in On Liberty, the greatest free speech book ever written, makes the same point. He says the biggest threat to freedom of speech is not from the government. It's from censorious social attitudes that oppress people who are, his word was eccentric. Our word for that would be individualistic, people with their own ideas that are different. He saw this massive Victorian social force bearing down on anyone who dared to be different. Well, we kind of forgot that in America because we went through the 60s and 70s. It became quite a free and open culture. Now we're rediscovering it because over 60% of Americans and over 60% of college students now say that they are reluctant to share their true political opinions for fear of bad social or professional consequences. That number, Knight's been polling about that every year. The number on campus has risen little by little every year. It's now about 66% in the latest poll of students who say they're chilled. They're unwilling to be open and honest about their views. A third of all Americans, this is across ideologies, not just conservatives. It's true of uh, progressives also. A third of Americans say they're reluctant to let their true political opinions be known at work for fear of professional consequences or even losing their jobs. It's hard to compare, but it looks like, according to survey evidence, the rate of self-censorship now in America is three to four times the level of the McCarthy era. And that may sound weird, but if you think about it, it's not. Because in the McCarthy era, you knew what not to say. You knew how to stay safe, stay away from communism. Also, by the way, homosexuality. Hmm. If you do that, you're, you're probably fine. Today, in the world of what's now called cancel culture, we should talk about what that actually is. Um, The whole point is to keep people guessing about where the boundaries are. They change from day to day. Uh, The words you have to use, what it is that you can't be silent about. Um, You never know where you stand. And that's deliberate. That's what cancel culture wants. It wants to chill us by making us our own policemen. Gosh, I don't know if it's really safe to say that. So I'll just be careful and not. So we get this over chilling. And and that's the point. So this is, I argue, um, cancel culture is a form of sophisticated information warfare. It's a way in which sharp-edged, ideological, but relatively small numbers of people, numerical minorities, can dominate and control the discourse of much larger populations. You said just now that you thought it might be helpful to to define what cancel culture is. And I, I know there's a phrase you use in the book, which is the spiral of silence. And if you can, I'd love for you to have an opportunity to define what ca- cancel culture is, what the spiral of silence is in practice, and 
where do you think this is really coming from? Why is it now, as you already said, the legal backing for free speech has arguably never been stronger? Why is it that today we're we're worried about this and that this has become a problem? Well, there's a bunch there, and I'm giving awfully long answers. Is that okay? That's fine. <laughs> okay. You'll you'll feel free to if I start filibustering too much, <laughs> feel free to jump in. Uh, so the word cancel culture, the term didn't exist when I started my book, but it came along and I thought it was actually very appropriate and I grabbed it. Some people say cancel culture is just criticism that, you know, white males like me don't like. Um, not true. What's called canceling is a sophisticated form of information warfare. And a good broad definition, I think, is that it organizes and manipulates the social environment in order to dominate the public conversation. And it can be used to make small groups of people seem much more prevalent and influential than they are and to intimidate much larger groups of people. And it does that by contravening the core idea of the constitution of knowledge, the reality-based community that's um, science, journalism, law, and government, the four institutions that must remain more to the constitution of knowledge or we become an oppressive and ignorant and warlike society. They all have in common that you're allowed to make mistakes. Life goes on. It doesn't end your career. It just means you lose the argument. Cancel culture says, uh-uh. Uh, Dan says one wrong word, or even he says something that's not a wrong word, but I and all my friends think it is, and we start a performative mob attack on Dan. One mistake in your career can be over. You can be fired from your job. You can lose tenure and your job at a university. It's just happened to a, a professor at, at Princeton. You lose your reputation. You're known as a racist. It's what comes up about you whenever you Google. You lose your friends, your social connections all because a small group of organized but very outspoken people decided to make an example of you in order to chill the conversation of a lot of other people. There's nothing new about this. Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in 1835, and he says the biggest threat to freedom in America is not from the government. It's from what we call cancel culture, what he called the tyranny of majority opinion. Turned out minorities could do it too. And it involves creating what are called spirals of silence in sociology. So this is a self-reinforcing dynamic that I can create. If I can give the impression that everyone agrees with me, people who disagree will increasingly feel isolated. They'll read the room. They'll say, well, no one agrees with me. I must be wrong, or I don't want to be cast out. The more people fall silent, the more people fall silent because other people fall silent. And it turns out you can get into an emperor's new clothes situation in which there's a hidden, an implicit majority in the room for an opinion which is not being stated. And the people in the room are going along with the false consensus because they think everyone else is in favor of the false consensus. Well, it turns out a very efficient way to create a spiral of silence is through social media. Because on social media, using um, algorithmic optimization and bots and very aggressive trolling and pylons, which are easy to organize, I can make it seem that you know the world is caving in on Dan Riley. I can organize a thousand people to go after you on Twitter, call you a racist. 
And it will seem to you like your life is coming to a catastrophic, your career is coming to a catastrophic end. So you'll fall silent. Others will see that and do the same. This is, again, it's nothing new. This is what the Soviet Union did, uh, creating spirals of silence. But it turns out social media is very well adapted to it. And that's why we're getting so much of the chilling that I alluded to earlier. Yeah. Um, that is one section in the second half of the book that you talk about that of the, the major threats to the constitution of, of knowledge itself. And there's a quote as well that I wanted to read that I thought was profound and, and worth noting again. This is me again, quoting you. For sure, self-censorship is part of living together. We call it courtesy, but not when it impedes honest conversation and criticism in university intellectual life, where honest conversation and criticism are the whole point of being there. I think this is an important point to make because I don't think you are making the point for incivility in any way. And that quote alludes to that in its totality. What do you think matters about that point that you were just making, that, that we do need to have reverence for social norms, social courtesies to one another, but when it comes to the institutions that are really trying to generate knowledge for our civilization, you have to take sacred cows and taboos off the table if you want to live in a civilization that is trying to approach the truth. Speak to that if you can. Why does that quote that I just read out matter? Why did you want to include the importance of courtesy um, in a civilization in the book in general? So this is what I missed the first time around. The, the marketplace of ideas is not self-organizing. It is not just not enough to have a lot of people saying a lot of different things and knowledge somehow automatically arises. You need a bunch of social conventions that say, Dan's going to present a hypothesis and Jonathan's going to respond to that hypothesis and we'll have certain implicit social rules for how to do that. For example, I can attack your evidence or I can say the argument is wrong and give reasons. Those reasons should then be legible to anyone else who wants to enter the conversation. But it would not be fair game for me to say, well, Dan Riley is wrong because he's white or Dan Riley is, in the words of the great Saturday Night Live sketch, people of my age will recognize this because Dan Riley is an ignorant slut. Those things will not necessarily get you sent to jail because we believe in free speech, but they'll get you marginalized. If I debate you that way, people will just pay no attention to me. They'll look for the people who are making good arguments, uh, who are showing a little bit of epistemic humility, who are following the rules of the Constitution of Knowledge. So the way we enforce all these implicit rules that, that allow us to systematically compare ideas and figure out collectively which ones are promising and which ones are not, there's a lot of these implicit norms about how to structure the conversation. And we do that through courtesy and civility, but we also have rules like if you want to be promoted in academia, you can't make up data. Uh, you're going to have to be honest in your citations. You're going to have to follow some from procedures and how you write your articles. So I'm not saying we should live in a world with no norms and where everyone is as obnoxious as possible because then your 4chan, your 8chan, your parts of Twitter 
Um, that's a failed epistemic model. It may succeed in some ways for free speech, though I would argue not even that because there's so much intimidation, bullying, and manipulation going on. But it fails at creating and advancing knowledge. So you need both. You need the freedom, but you also need the restraints, the rules. And the rules, again, you know, no one's going to get thrown in jail because they're a bad scientist, but they won't be invited to the next conference. That's how we do it. It turns out to be incredibly effective. Yeah. I know you have had conversations with another figure, another intellectual, um, who I think is one of the most important thinkers in modern times, which is Jonathan Haidt. You've already mentioned his name before. And what I love about a lot of the work that you are presenting is also viewing human error through the litany of the findings of behavioral economics in the biases that are kind of hardwired into human nature and how tribal people are, which gets us into trouble. And I think a lot of this is rooted in our evolutionary wiring and our evolutionary history. So th there is a consilience that I'm noticing in your book that's kind of pulling from a variety of different academic disciplines in your attempt to make sense of what in the hell is going on here and how we have been hit um, but in so many different directions, uh, that it, in a way that is, I think, dangerous and threatening to the constitution of knowledge that is, is kind of baked into the DNA of, of America and, and the West. It's another quote I wanted to read from you, which I think gets to the general point of our wiring and our tribalism and how it can, how we can at least make sense of this. It was, it was occurring to me that a lot of what you are doing is reverse engineering are attempting to reverse engineer the world we find ourselves in right now, which I think for many Americans, they find unsettling and destabilizing and just odd and difficult to make sense of. This is the quote from you. Think of it this way. Humans are equipped with some of evolution's finest mental circuitry to protect us from changing our minds when doing so might alienate us from the group. We have hundreds of thousands of years of practice at believing whatever will keep us in good standing with our tribe, even if that even that even if that requires denying, discounting, rationalizing, misperceiving, and ignoring the evidence in front of our nose, we see this talent. We we see this talent put to work every day by others and by ourselves. To to add to that, I know you note that in your mind, the two most dangerous of the biases that we have that I think behavioral economics thinkers and researchers speak about a lot is confirmation bias and, con and conformity bias. Um, I think conformity bias certainly maps on quite well to cancel culture and the, uh, the silencing that um, you were just speaking about. It might be a decent time to transition to the other half of the problem that you see of what's going on right now with disinformation uh, related to troll culture. And you're welcome to add anything on to, you know, maybe Height's work or the quote I just read related to the tribal nature of the human mind. Um, if there's anything you want to add to the cancel culture component to the conversation, you're welcome to. But if, if you'd like, it might be helpful to move into the second primary issue that that I know um, you write about a lot, which is the the troll culture phenomenon, which I think Trump, you think, is, you know, a, a unique kind of sui generis um, phenomenon in American history and, and the role he has played in 
in troll culture and disinformation in that category? Uh, sure, happy to happy to go there. But you do give me the opportunity to uh, shout out Jonathan Haidt, whose work has inspired much of my own. And in fact, the I think the genesis of the Constitution of Knowledge, the core ideas, was a speech that he gave at the Manhattan Institute, I think maybe 2016 or 17, some, somewhere around there, where he made the point that if some of the relationships, the constants in the universe were just a little bit different, we couldn't live in the world we do. Everything would be topsy-turvy. The universe couldn't have formed to begin with. And he makes the analogy from that to, well, our our civic order, our constitutional system relies on a whole bunch of implicit social settings that we need to get right. And they're actually pretty delicate. And he's thinking about this in the context of what's happening with extreme polarization and extreme hyper-partisanship and the breakdown of civility. And I take that idea and say, well, that's right. And knowledge also depends on these social settings. What are they? Um, so I encourage everyone to explore John Haidt's books and his latest article in Atlantic, which argues that basically social media are incompatible with democracy. Okay, so there's another branch, and it's equally, if not more important, than cancel culture. Um, the book I call it Troll Epistemology, but we can think of it as disinformation and the related black arts of propaganda. So I think there are two intellectual, I think, real advances in my book. One is the idea of the constitution of knowledge, that there is such a thing, literally, and to try to spell it out. The other is to link cancel culture and Trumpian-style, Russian-style mass disinformation, as different as they seem and as different as the groups that are doing them are and as different as the ideologies behind them are, my view is that they are two forms of the same thing. They are sophisticated cognitive and information warfare designed to exploit our inherent cognitive and social biases so that relatively small opportunistic groups of people can dominate the conversation and the discourse among significantly larger groups. Um, cancel culture, which we've talked about, organizes and manipulates the social environment in order to dominate the public discourse. Well, there's another way to do it. You can organize and manipulate the media environment, the information environment, in order to dominate the discourse. How do you do that? Again, nothing new. A hundred years ago, more than that, the czars and Vladimir Lenin and then others discover that although um, censorship can be a powerful tool, that disinformation and propaganda can be even a more powerful tool. If you put out so much false or half-true or conspiratorial or just confusing information that people can't keep up, if you put out such a, a wall of lies you can deeply confuse people about what's true and what's false, or even if it's ever possible to know truths. They'll throw up their hands. As Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, famously say, everything is possible and nothing is true. Hmm. And Russia set about perfecting this form of disinformation as a kind of statecraft. 
One version of it's been called fire hose of falsehood. That's where you put out such a high volume of so many confusing and contradictory stories that people don't know what to believe. Um, this is high-tech cognitive warfare. It's hard to resist, even if you know what's going on. It's the opposite of censorship. Censorship tries to squeeze the supply of information by saying, you can't say that. This kind of mass disinformation does the opposite. As Steve Bannon, an advisor to Trump, said, you flood the zone with shit. It's the opposite of censorship. It's completely legal. But you create such an environment of falsehood and confusion that people have no way to get oriented and to know what they believe. Powerful tool of totalitarian rule. Also a powerful tool if you're a demagogue and you want to confuse people about truth. So these are old tools. They have not been applied in a mass way in the United States since perhaps the 1850s when they were used by secessionists in the South. By the way, that, in case you were wondering, that didn't end very well. Um, in the United States, however, we didn't see them applied. You know, it just politicians didn't think they could get away with it and they didn't particularly want to try. But then a couple of things happen. We get a perfect storm around 2014, 15, 16. First, you get the rise of social media which are ideally designed, they're optimized for mass disinformation because they're designed to get people's attention regardless of whether something is true or false. They just want you to click, right? Yeah. So if it's viral, it works. Well, it turns out disinformation, stuff that causes outrage, stimulates engagement, stuff that uh, is hyper-partisan, false things that are funny or stupid, uh, stimulate engagement. These things go viral very quickly. And it turns out you can optimize them with stuff like, you know, bots and algorithms. Second thing that happens is the Russians say, ah, well, these are new tools. Let's bring them to America. And the uh, uh, Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg begins trolling Americans and starting demonstrations against each other on opposite sides of the street uh, and begin playing with our election. Then the third thing that happens you get uh, conservative media starts using mass conspiracy theories. Uh, and then you get the big one. That's the rise of Donald Trump. Now, this will sound like a partisan statement to many of your viewers. I apologize for that. I'm the least partisan person you'll ever meet. I have admired and voted for many Republicans. I'm center right. I'm just telling you what I think the facts bear out, but make up your own mind. In 2016, according to PolitiFact, about 25% of Hillary Clinton's checkable claims are mostly or entirely false. That's too high. We don't like it. We wish it were lower, but maybe during the heat of a presidential campaign, 25% is what you might expect. The equivalent number for Donald Trump is 70%. That's seven zero percent of the checkable claims he's making are uh, partially or entirely false. That doesn't happen by accident. The first thing he does as president is lie about the size of his inauguration crowd and whether it rained during the inaugural ceremony. The things he says are obviously false. The point isn't to persuade people. It's to do what Putin does, assert sovereignty over the truth. Say, I can say any damn thing I want, and I can say the opposite tomorrow, and that's how it's going to be from now on. He then proceeds to issue according to the Washington Post fact checker, 30,000 lies. I think it's 35,000 actually over the course of his presidency. It's like 20 a day. We've never seen anything like that, all leading to stop the steal. The most sophisticated 
ambitious and successful mass disinformation campaign that's ever been run in America by anybody, foreign or domestic. There is no consistent story about how the election was stolen. They go to court with 60 of these stories, all of them made up. Whenever you knock down a story, three more appear. But the point is not to have a consistent story about how the election was stolen. It's to to convince Republicans that somehow it was stolen and independents that will never know who the real winner was. Fantastically effective. Majority of Republicans believe the safest election on record, probably right up there in any case, was stolen and that we are no longer an electoral democracy. This is profoundly destabilizing stuff. The tactics that we're seeing here, we know from many years of experience in Russia and elsewhere, are extremely effective because they're taking aim at our deep cognitive defects. Until now, we have relied on forbearance in American politics to get away from those tactics. Now they have been institutionalized by Trump and the MAGA movement. Now we're going to be seeing them for good. And we're going to have to develop much better defenses against them than we've had. The dread. Um, you know, I, I used this imagery earlier about, you know, the immune system of a, of a nation and the, you know, attack on that immune system in these two different directions that we've just talked about. And I want to focus in on, on the second, on the disinformation, on the, the rise of Trump. You just said it was the most effective disinformation campaign in the history of America. I think you are correct that you know once this has been breached, we should expect that this was act one and not the last act. For an audience of people that, whether they're Republican or Democrat, whether they even voted for Trump or not, but they agree with your assessment of the big lie and the danger that that poses to the future of the country and the stability of the country outside of just knowing the details of what happened and what the facts really were what can a, an engaged curious population do to protect themselves to you know grow the antibodies to be able to deflect future attempts to really rot the system from within in the future well, I love the parallel to antibodies and the immune system. Um, and there are two levels at which to respond to that question. One is social immunization, and then one is personal immunization. There are things we can do as individuals, but there are a lot of things that, that really we rely on social institutions to do for us. So there is, in fact, a, a new discipline in academia sprung up in the last several years for obvious reasons. It's called cognitive immunology. And it says, what can we learn about viral immunology to understand how to interrupt um, the viral flow of misinformation and disinformation through a vulnerable population? How can we do things like create create fire breaks? For example, this might be a a trusted authority in a community, a pastor, say, or a physician uh, who's able to say, wait a minute and get some people to listen and slow down. You'll never get rid of disinformation and misinformation. You don't want to. You know That would be a totalitarian world. What you need to do is slow it down enough so that it can't pick up the momentum to spread through the whole network before better information uh, can get its boots on and, and even get out the door. So just slowing it down and containing it to certain places makes a big difference. And they're looking at how to do that. Um, 
institutionally, there's a lot that can be done. And the good news is a lot has been done. Mainstream media, of which I'm a part, is much more sophisticated about disinformation and misinformation than it was five years ago. They have reporters covering it. They're more careful about uh, giving the full context of where information comes from, whether it might have been messed with, Uh, not repeating conspiracy theories in the course of covering them. Every time you repeat one, it actually embeds deeper. They want you to debunk it. Uh, So they're more sophisticated. Social media platforms have been part of the problem. They are working to become more part of the solution. I don't think content moderation, though it's important and necessary, I don't think that's where the answers are mainly going to lie. The answers are mainly going to be in actually changing the function of the way the platforms work so that they are less hostile to truth. And that includes measures like adding friction, just slowing things down a bit, making people think before they retweet. Twitter's already doing that. Uh, interstitial warnings. Um, and there are lots of design choices that could be made to slow down this information without, by the way, censoring it. All you have to do is slow it down. Um, government has begun to learn. Um, information experts are saying that we have just seen the United States conf- uh, do its a textbook example, a breakthrough example of counter-information warfare in Ukraine. Um, we've been caught flat-footed again and again and again by Russian disinformation because they're good at it and know all about it, and we're naive and don't until now. We engaged in a strategy that's called pre-bunking, where you get out in front of the disinformation by breaking into their networks and releasing the intelligence to say, here's what you can expect the Russians to say. Here's the lies, what the lies are going to look like. And it turns out that has two effects. First, to some extent, it can inoculate the target population. So they'll say, aha, I recognize that. I shouldn't necessarily believe that. But second, it actually deterred the Russians from launching some of their disinformation attacks because we got there first. People say that this will be studied for years as an example of of an effective counter disinformation campaign. I could go on, but you get the idea. The academy has to do a much better job of protecting free speech and preventing spirals of silence. In all our institutions, I think there are ways that that each of us can contribute to supporting the constitutional knowledge because it's going to be different solutions in different institutions. And that gets to the second part of the response, which is what individuals can do Um, just, just by ourselves. And some of that is simple, but so important, not easy, but simple, like think twice before you retweet that funny thing that might or might not be true. Um, If in doubt, don't retweet it. If you see someone being canceled, being attacked for their beliefs, don't go to them in private and say, gee, I wish I could support you, but I'm too scared. Stand up for them. Criticize the cancelers. That can be risky, but it actually takes only a small number of people to break a spiral of silence. And then it can collapse very quickly because then other people say, hey, wait a minute. I also don't agree with this canceling. And very quickly, you can switch the dynamic. Um, Think harder about our information diets. Uh, make sure you're not in a liberal bubble, uh, not in a conservative bubble. I try to read from different points of view, even the ones that I don't particularly agree with. And then I try to, I try to um, triangulate rather than accepting any one of them. Uh, teaching critical thinking, learning critical thinking, um, very important. 
that's being done in foreign countries like Estonia with with some success. And we can do a bit more here, both at the individual level and, and the personal level. Um, but if you ask me what single thing would make the most difference, it would be what you talked to David Blankenhorn about on this podcast. And that's reducing the level of polarization in America. And that's counterintuitive because we think, well, problems with social media should be solved by social media companies, but they really can't be. So a lot of what's going on here is propagandization and polarization are two sides of the same coin. The ultimate goal of propaganda is to divide and demoralize the target population, not necessarily to deceive them. Because the more divided that society is, the weaker it is, and the more divided it is, the more people will be willing to believe false propaganda about the hated other side. So you polarize in order to propagandize, and you propagandize in order to polarize, and you get the kind of downward spiral we're in now. Well, you can break that spiral by building more trust, reducing the level of polarization, making people less receptive to that ultra-partisan hateful stuff about the other party. Uh, and thinking, well, wait a minute, that stuff may not be true. Maybe I'm being manipulated. So the work that Braver Angels and other grassroots groups are doing to start rebuilding some trust in social capital, I think that's the single most important way to make ourselves less vulnerable to being manipulated by the actors that are trying to divide and dominate us. Yeah. To to just quickly paraphrase that conversation that I had with David, which was about a year ago, you know, to, to my memory, the, the the most effective thing that he has found to work to reduce the kind of polarization you're talking about is simple but profound of getting people who are diametrically opposed with each other politically in the same room for a significant chunk of time on a Saturday. And they have an entire procedure laid out to begin to kind of let some of the hot air out and to let some of the divisiveness begin to die down and to increase, you know, a a more human conversation between people who think, you know, that the person sitting across the table from them might be the the very embodiment of of evil and ignorance. Um, I found his the results. And the the work that they're doing to just be incredibly impressive and uh, you know a, a source of hope. You know, I, I yeah, wanna, I would. Me I would, too. I, I, I just if, if I could just add a a quick friendly amendment to that, please. Um, everyone can look at braverangels.org to learn more. There's the workshop model which you just referred to, Dan. There's also Braver Angels debates which are being launched in communities and colleges around the country. And that's where people, again, from opposite sides have what we call truth-seeking debates. But the magic to all of these things is you don't just put people in a room together and say, okay, Democrats, Republicans, conservative liberals, have a conversation. It's structured. And that's the same magic as the constitution of knowledge. It's a structure which channels our disagreements in ways that can be constructive. And the most common reaction people have when they leave one of these structured dialogues is we're not as divided as we've been led to believe. And that's in fact true. America, as as polarized a country as we think we are, Americans believe that the other side is twice as different from and hostile to them as the other side actually is. And just getting people better informed about these divides not being as big as we think and the other side not being as different as we think 
that in itself reduces the polarization, which reduces the propagandization. So there's there's a lot we can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I that's my memory as well of what David was conveying to me in that conversation that um, it, people are not as divided as they think they are. And it is very easy to straw man your opposition when you have no interaction with them whatsoever. And they just balloon and compound into a more evil yeah. version of something than they, than they are in reality. Where all you're seeing is the nut picking that's being done on social media and um, cable news where, you know, you go out and find the most outrageous thing that someone on the other side said, and then you amplify it and say, this is what they all say. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't double down a little bit on the big lie. Um, that we talked about a little bit. And I know you have said in prior interviews. No, I wasn't strong enough on that. No, I, I, I think you gave. Am I being too ambivalent about it? <laughs> I think, you know, for somebody like yourself, you, you admitted this, that you're center right. And you think, you know, your opinions on what happened is they're not a political statement. It's a, it's an, uh, a statement of objective reality. And, uh, you know, I have friends that I've had conversations with that were, this is another brilliant point I think that you you make that's important to keep in mind, which is the role of disinformation often primarily is to confuse. It's to confuse and to make people un, incapable or n- non-confident in their ability to know what is true. And in that vacuum, a strong leader steps in and fills the role for capital T truth for people who are feeling a bit bamboozled by what is going on. And I've had conversations with friends who I know and love dearly, who I think were susceptible to the big lie and were, you know, confused as to whether or not what Trump was saying was real. What, you know, and again, I hope we're wrong about this and that we will not face a significant threat to a peaceful transition of power in the future. But I think it's very possible to happen again in in our lifetimes, uh, potentially in 2024. To do some counterintelligence, to do some proactive work for people who might be listening to this and still have questions about what happened in 2016. You know, I, I was reading this morning and yesterday in preparation for this conversation you know, the majority of Republicans, it seems, still believe that Trump won the election in 2016. That number seems to be coming down since the since the 2020 election. Um, what do we know about the truth of the matter here, right? I mean, what, what are the best counter arguments to that? What's the best preparatory work that we can put a stake in the ground to refer back to as time moves forward, if we do face another presidential figure or a candidate who is claiming victory or when really that that was not the result. Um, You know, when people come and ask you about what happened in 2020, who don't believe that Biden actually won, what do you think is the are the best pieces of evidence that you submit to, you know, help to change their mind? Well, the first thing to say is that it's not clear that that information per se and evidence are are all that relevant to a lot of the people involved. Um, Because it turns out that humans believe what we believe. 
on big abstract matters like who won an election, this is not true if, you know, like where is the next tribe camped or is that a tiger in the bush or just breeze where we get immediate feedback and it's personally important. Um, or for that matter, in stock picking where we have, you know, real consequences and, and money in the game. But on abstract questions like who won the election, we tend to go with what our tribe thinks because that's where we're getting our social status and our sense of solidarity. And um, for a lot of people who believe stop the steal, they're not going to change their mind in the face of any evidence, because that would mean rethinking their whole affiliation to their, to the the group that, that they're a part of politically, socially, their whole identity. So what we're aiming for is the persuadable middle. Um, and that fortunately is a majority of Americans. Uh, so evidence, there's, there's a couple ways to think about it. One is the positive evidence, the fact that Trump's own attorney general and the justice department who are very protective of Trump looked at it and said, we can't find any credible evidence of significant electoral fraud. Trump's own Department of Homeland Security, which had a cyber fraud unit, sophisticated people looked at it and said, as far as we can tell, this is as safe and fair um, and accurate an election as has ever been run. Uh, You can add the fact that every single conspiracy theory and claim of stolen election that has surfaced, to my knowledge, was quickly knocked down. Um, I'm familiar with the ones in Arizona, my whole, my home state. There were some notions that the Chinese, some, someone had sent in Chinese fake ballots. Um, and like this whole audit went to work looking for bamboo fibers in ballots. It all fell apart. There's nothing to it. So there's all of that, which leads to sort of the second way to think about it, which is a core epistemic principle, if you want to be reality-based, is that which is asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Hmm. Um, you can make something up about the election, and a lot of people have. And the answer is, there's absolutely no reason to believe that unless you can come up with compelling evidence. And no one has. The fact that every time a conspiracy theory is knocked down to rise up in its place, none of them substantiated, should tell you something. In Arizona, again, my home state, I know a bit about it. Um, the election was counted twice by the county recorder in Maricopa County. That's the big swing district with Phoenix in it. And then it went out to two private companies professional election auditors who audited it. They all came out with the same result. That wasn't good enough for MAGA conspiracy theories who demanded their own audit and brought in a group called Cyber Ninjas to do one. Now, this was a group with zero experience working with elections. They didn't know how to handle the ballots. They didn't have the right kind of workers. They didn't have squat. But they came back after six months saying, they confirm the same count as the official count, except a larger margin for Joe Biden. Now, that's Trump's MAGA's own people. What was the response to that? Trump could have said, 
well, I guess I was wrong about Arizona. Do you think he said that? Because what he actually said is the fraud was in Pima County, the next county over. Now, what's happening here is obvious Russian-style disinformation. You just keep making stuff up. At some point, individuals need to draw a line and need to understand they're being manipulated. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I know we're getting close. Yeah. To Go ahead. There's, if people want resources, there is tons of stuff in reputable organizations online that go through the conspiracy theories and, and the fake claims. Um, so it's, it's all out there, and you and I can find some and put them in the show notes sure. if you want. Yeah. But at some point, we just have to recognize this is not going to be a subject of sort of rational debate. Yeah. Um, at some point, what needs to happen is that people who understand the way we're being manipulated and who are invested in the strength of democracy will begin punishing politicians who engage in these big lie practices, and that will get them to stop. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, I know we're getting close to the end of the conversation and, you know, to go back to the growing the antibodies theme of the, of, of this chat, you know, I, I was really impressed in getting more exposed to your work that of how much work you are doing and how much really clarity you are providing to try to reach the sane, I think, majority in the U S that is still aspiring to live in the reality-based community that, you know, even if they have a, a political affiliation in general, they're more loyal to the principles of the country. And I want to thank you for all of the work that you have done in writing what I think is one of the most important books that certainly I have read in many years. Um, the ideas in it, and I think the information in it is timely, I think is going to be enduring and is it's just extremely helpful as a citizen to um, be exposed to and to be able to refer back to in, um, again, clarifying what has really happened to the information space in the country. Um, I'd love to, to close in referring back to one of the themes that I think you, uh, we've already touched on today, which is that the, the, the civilizations that are rooted in the constitution of knowledge are, are the systems that can lead to widespread peace, freedom, and knowledge. You know, it, we are like with many things in life that are meaningful and important. We, we can take them for granted uh, often at our peril and that we live in, you know, a garden in the jungle in this world. And I hope, you know, the work like yours contributes to the antibodies of the population to, to be able to hold on to the principles and the the DNA of the country that make America what it is and, and to, to maintain the inheritance that I think we all have received. Um, I, I'd like to close maybe by talking about the future. You know, we, we just discussed ways in which the population can prepare for, you know, future attacks of disinformation uh, coming our way. But you know, my understanding of your take of where we are is that there is reason for concern, but I, I sense an optimism in you um, in relation to our ability to generate the reserves and the knowledge necessary to fight back against these real threats. Um, and, and maybe just to, to close with a, a very you know, simple question, 
how do you think about the future? You know, we've, we've talked a lot about the risks, but um, what are you hopeful about, if anything? What, what do you think is important for people that want, uh, you know, want hope and want some optimism as it pertains to the country and to the world to, to hold on to? How do you think about that? Well, there's, there's a lot of different directions that could go, including talking about the environment and national security. But, but I'm going to guess you're more interested in the issues around yeah. information, knowledge, truth, um, the, the, the issues we're talking about. I tell people I'm not necessarily optimistic because I don't think we've turned the corner yet, but I am hopeful. It, it goes back to something that you said earlier, Dan, which is that for a long time, the, the constitution of knowledge worked so well that we weren't even cognizant of it. We just assumed free speech is all you need. We forgot about all the rules, all the, the years of training that we spent learning how to, how to uh, think and talk to each other in rational, empirical ways, how to trust far off authorities and experts um, and understand what they're doing. And all of those things, we forgot to defend them and we got lazy and we left ourselves wide open to both the forms of information of cognitive warfare that we're talking about canceling and disinformation. Um, well, we're not quite that naive anymore. A lot of people have awakened to these threats. They understand how fundamental they are. And we are seeing mobilization in all kinds of institutions. We talked about some of them. There are many more examples and also in people's heads, individuals becoming more sophisticated about what's going on in social media. So I think that project of, of institutional and personal inoculation is beginning. Um, I think the era of complacency is definitely over. And that's a big deal. It means that it, it, it's no longer a one-sided battle. Um, so that mobilization makes me hopeful. I'm also hopeful because of something else we discussed. This is not our first bout with major risks to the knowledge ecosystem. The uh, development of the printing press was a severe disruption, turned out a, a very, very dangerous and deadly one. Uh, but there have been others that are more recent. One was the, the transition from a hyper-partisan fake news media in the late 19th century to the golden age of fact-based journalism, starting in the, in the 40s and, and then moving through the 20th century. Um, there's the professionalization of medicine, which basically used to be a bunch of folk remedies um, and, and arguing orthodoxies. Very quickly, it was reorganized into the system that we now know, where you've got professionals who are well-informed and doing real science. So we've seen again and again throughout history that when people become conscious that the information space is being manipulated and polluted and is breaking down, that they begin to organize ways to fight back, to create standards and guidelines, to get people better at thinking rationally, to look at the systems that are helping the sociopaths dominate and start adjusting those. Can we do it again? The answer is yes, we can do it again. Will we do it again? So you're 20 years or a bit more than that, younger than I am. It's up to you and it's up to your kids, really. But, you know, you said some very nice things about me and my book. Um, those nice things are nice, but the reason I'm here is for you and your kids. And the interest that you're showing in these issues, the alarm that you're expressing, or at least the concern, um, the fact that this is a front of mind issue for you, that tells me that there's hope. Because mobilizing people like you 
and your audience, that's what wins this. Yeah. I think that's a good place to close. Um, Jonathan, I just want to say thank you again for all the work that you're doing. I mean, I feel personally like my system has been upgraded uh, even in the last week, uh, getting, getting exposed to the ideas that you share in books and podcasts that you've done. And um, I really appreciate your efforts and your time and the, the work that you've put into um, contributing to, to helping the country. So thank you. And thank you for all. Well, I'm grateful to be here. I apologize if I filibustered. I hope you'll put the book in the show notes because the book is better than the movie. <laughs> I'll be sure to do that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.